scholars sometimes talk about the means of grace, the means of grace or things that we have that build us up in Christ, things that Christians should appropriate or take hold of to grow. And without doing these things, it will be difficult to grow. For, for centuries, some of the most important means of grace have been things like the Bible, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. And right now, what we're going to do is access the second one, prayer, and bow our heads before God to pray. So please join me for a pastoral prayer. O oh Lord God, you are one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship you and adore you. We thank you that you have loved one another uh, in the Trinity from eternity past. We, you are the God of love, the, the one in which love is derives from. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are not just a God of wrath or righteous anger, but that you are a God of grace and love and mercy as well. So, Lord, we give you thanks for your character. We give you thanks that for those of us in Christ, you opened our eyes to see you, to know you, to believe in you. Thank you that you love us, Lord. Do you want to pray, Lord, for our forgiveness, for our lack of love, for our selfishness or our comfort, our idolatry, our narcissism, things that get in the way, for our not believing the best in one another, or failing to love our neighbors and our enemies well. Lord, please forgive us for the many ways we have stumbled in these areas. And please show us areas in which we can grow. Help us to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. Supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, please fill us with the help to love our spouses, to love our children, to love our grandchildren. Lord, in the moments when no one else is watching, when you are watching, help us to be people who, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth will speak truth and love. Help us, God. Help us to be quick to forgive. Help us to believe the best in one another. Help us not to hold grudges. Help us not to keep score. Lord, I want to remind all of us today of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Lord, your word commands that your people pray for people like presidents, for people in high positions, whether we agree with them or not, we are called to love and to pray. And so I want to pray for our new president-elect, Joe Biden. And I ask that you fill him with strength and wisdom and help. I pray that you surround him with Christians. I, we grieve that, we, uh, that he doesn't seem to have saving faith in Christ. We ask that you would save him and open up his heart to believe in Jesus. And I pray you... Raise up more Christians in politics, more Christian men and women who care about the things that you care about, like justice and the environment and the community and babies. Pray, God, bring more and more people in this nation, more evangelical, orthodox, gospel-centered churches to make a difference. Lord, we say our ultimate hope today is not in a person or a policy, but in Christ the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. 
So, Lord, help us to not fear, but to trust in you. Build this up through your word today. Help us, Lord. We look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Connect kids are dismissed. At this time, connect kids can be dismissed. Well, we're going through the Gospel of John, and we have our scripture reading, which is on the PowerPoint for you today. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like to invite you to grab that and turn now with me to John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. You may also grab your iPhone or your Android or some kind of phone, smartphone, and turn with me to the Bible passage today. Starting in verse 31, where we read these words. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of God. If you've ever received hard news, out of nowhere, you know how unsettling it could be. You lose a loved one. Spouse tells you he's leaving. You get let go from a job for weird or unclear reasons. Something happens in society and it shakes you or affects you to the core. Receiving this kind of news out of nowhere can be difficult because your life seems wobbly. For several weeks or months, even a year, but everyone else's life seems to go on just fine. And when you talk to people about it, they they can't quite understand or sympathize with you because they themselves aren't going through it at the same time. Receiving hard news out of nowhere can be difficult, and this is exactly what happens in our passage today. When Jesus tells his disciples he is leaving them. See, we look back into the story and we know what's going to happen because many of us have read the story before. But the disciples are living this out in the moment and they look forward. So if you put yourself in their position, you can imagine the tension that they might be feeling. That for three years they followed Jesus and listened to him and somewhat obeyed him. They left their careers and families and money 
and, and life behind to follow this Messiah. And now, during the last week of his life, he's saying he's leaving, and they can't come with him, at least not yet. Well, today we continue our Gospel of John sermon series. We are in chapter 13. If you remember, in January, we started chapter 1. And right now, we get to the part of John's Gospel that's called the Farewell Discourse. Chapters 13 through 17 is the Farewell Discourse. Farewell like goodbye, discourse like teaching. It's Jesus' last week, and before he goes by to die on the cross and rise from the dead, he pours out his life, his last teachings, into the disciples. He's basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm about to die soon. Here's how I want you to live when I leave. Listen to these words. Having been rejected by the Jewish leaders over and over again, he turns almost his sole attention to his disciples. And this is the most continuous teachings of Jesus found anywhere in the Gospels. You'll see a lot of red in there in your Bible. Jesus is pouring himself out into the disciples in his last week of his life saying, this is how I want you to live. And today's teaching is one of the most important of all of them because it teaches the disciples what it means to love one another. This is one of the biggest teachings of all of Christian ethics is that Christian disciples should love other Christian disciples. We have a difficult time loving people. That's all of us. All of us have a difficult time. There are so many different passages in Scripture that say we need to love one another. Yet one scholar says that's probably true because we have a difficult time doing it and we need a lot of reminders. But love is very important. And today, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples that they should love one another as he has loved them. Disciples should love other disciples like Jesus has loved them. That is the granddaddy of them all when it comes to Christian ethics. Loving other Christians. And this happens in a conversation. You see a dialogue. Where Jesus says this. He's, uh, the, John writes, he says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The he and the when he had gone out is Judas, not, Je not Jesus. Uh, in the previous section of scripture, Jesus is at a table with the disciples. Judas is there. Judas gets up. He leaves. Eventually, to betray Jesus, to get soldiers, to get people to arrest Jesus. That, in effect, starts the motion of Jesus being arrested and having a trial and dying on the cross. This, it's starting now in the Gospel of John. And so you could feel the tension, and Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He, he says the word glorified. It actually appears five times in these two verses. When the Bible repeats itself like that, it's trying to tell you something. It's, uh, glory is one of those fancy religious words that means praise or excellence or uh, weightiness. Uh, as one writer says, it means to display God's excellence. And what Jesus is saying here is that him and his father are going to receive glory 
when Jesus goes to the cross. So right now, in John's narrative, we are focusing our attention at the cross. Because that is a big part of Christian teaching. The cross of Christ. Where Jesus dies on the cross in our place and for the sins of those who believe in him. And one of the reasons why this brings glory to God is because Jesus' sacrifice was a sign of obedience. God, like any good parent, wants to see his children obey. And Jesus emulates this perfectly through obeying him perfectly throughout his life. It says this in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we can say, Jesus' substitute was a sign of obedience. But it wasn't just that. There was, there was more going on. Jesus, by dying, makes a way for sinful human beings to have a right relationship with God. So instead of Christians or non-Christians or any people experiencing the wrath of God forever and eternal content, condemnation, if you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus... You will never experience God's wrath because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And on the cross, it certainly didn't look like Jesus was winning or that he was glorified. It's very interesting that he uses this terminology because he was there exposed, humiliated. He was saying things like, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? People spit on his face. People were wagging their heads at him. People smacked him and said, hey, you're the Christ, prophesy, which one of us smacked you? And then he's hanging on a blood-stained tree. Uh, people are making fun of him. If there, there was ever a time where it seemed like Christianity was doomed and that God failed, certainly it's the cross of Christ. But God works in mysterious ways. And it was at the cross where Jesus was most highly exalted. Because it is there that he finished the work that the Father gave him to do. To die in our place and to make a way for us to be saved. This is the most important act in all of history. It's the greatest love act of all time. How would you define the word love? One widely used definition that Christians have used throughout the ages is doing what's best for people regardless of the cost. That's a pretty good start, I think. It's others focused. Uh, Love is not always making people feel good or just doing, being a yes man or yes woman. Any parent knows that you have to discipline, which sometimes means the kids cry, but you know that you're smarter than them and you lived enough life that sometimes it's necessary because you love them. Doing what's best for other people, that, that is a really good start. But we can go even deeper because in his book on ethics, John Frame, he frames the word love in three words. He says this. Love is allegiance, love is action, love is affection. Allegiance, action, affection. So we start with allegiance. We we remember the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Still applies today. Saying that if you are a Christ follower, that God should be the most important reality in your life. More important than children or spouse or career is your allegiance to God and your love for Him, that you rightly see yourself as a servant and He's the Lord, 
if you're the servant, he's the Lord, that there's this sort of allegiance that you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give my whole life to him. That, that's part of what it means to be loving is to have your allegiance to the God of the Bible. Love is not just allegiance, though. It's also action. We, we say the expression, talk is cheap. Uh, talk is good. You know, verbalizing your commitments and who you love and why you love it is a very good thing. But it has to be met with action for it to be legitimate. So we don't just say, I love my spouse, but you actually show it through your actions. We don't just say, I love Jesus, but we show it through the way we live. Jesus specifically says this in the next chapter, where he says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Commandments are everything that's revealed in the Bible. Not perfectly, but if you love Jesus, you would genuinely want to obey Scripture. That would, that's what it looks like to obey Jesus. So we have our allegiance to God, we show action through obeying God, but we also have affection for God, a love, a warmth. Love is not restricted to feelings, but we need to include feelings because they matter. Jesus is going to say, little children, as he's talking to his disciples, showing them the gentleness and compassion that he has for them. He's modeling this love right before our eyes, speaking to his, his disciples in a very tender, loving way. Love is allegiance, it's action, and it's affection, both to God and to other people. And the, there are several Greek words for the word love. The word here is agape. You probably heard that word. It's very simple. It just means genuine interest in other people. It, it just means warm regard and appropriate affection for other people. That's what Jesus is talking about, to have a special kind of love. Ronnie Coleman was a bodybuilder in the early 21st century. Really big, strong dude, ate 500 grams of protein a day. He won the Olympia several times. The Olympia is like the Super Bowl of bodybuilding. And he got to the point where, after the second Super Bowl title, if you will, he was making enough money. Every time you win the Olympia, it's over a six-figure check. And he was getting sponsorships and endorsements. And, and you know, the, the secret behind these lives is the traveling and the speaking is, is more money as well. So he was getting to the point where he made enough money where he didn't need to keep his full-time job. But he did keep his full-time job as a police officer. He was a very dedicated police officer in Texas. He kept his job. He would help people fight for justice throughout the day, lift weights at night, eat a bunch of food throughout the day. And people would come up to Ronnie all the time and say, dude, you're crazy. What are you doing? Look at the stress you're putting on your body. You don't need to have this job anymore. Just quit helping people. You don't need to help people anymore with this. Just, just be a celebrity bodybuilder. And he, he wouldn't listen to them. And he said, the reason why I keep my job as a police officer is simple. I love to do it. Love is the reason behind everything we say and do. The Bible talks about the heart as the center of one's affections and feelings. And Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. All of our actions and all of our words derive from our heart. And if our hearts are filled with the love of Jesus, filled with scripture, filled with prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're going to love God, we're going to love people. But if we start to love things more than God... 
then many problems will occur. We won't love people to the best of our abilities. Being loving is one of the most important Christian teachings in all of Scripture. So we, we see a little bit of what love is, but now Jesus adds to the story, he adds a new command. Not only do we learn about the love of Christ at the cross, but Jesus adds a new command. In verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. <laughs> and you're reading that, and you're like, new commandment? We're in the Gospel of John. It's like three-fourths of the Bible is done. We saw love one another several times. How could you say this is new? In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says, You shall love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, with all that you are. In Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if the stuff you like, you do that stuff to other people. You like it when people forgive you and encourage you and help you. Then you, you turn around and you do the same for others. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. All throughout scripture, it says, love one another. And Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. What could be new about this? Well, he answers the question in the next few words where he says, just as I have loved you. So we know we're supposed to love God with our whole heart, with our whole being. We know we're supposed to love other people just the way we want to be loved. But now Jesus raises the standard for his disciples and says, you need to take it a bar higher. Love people the way I have loved you. This is the chief distinguishing mark of a true disciple. Love for other disciples. This is the number one spiritual thermometer diagnostic question to ask yourself. Do I desire to love other Christians the way that Jesus loves me? We look at doctors and we see they're distinguished often by their education. Often delaying full-time employment until their late 20s or 30s for the wonderful ambition of helping people in the field of medicine. NBA athletes, if you're not at least 6'3", you've got a very slim shot of making it to the NBA. Most of those guys are really tall. Professors are distinguished by their love for reading and writing and thinking. The thing that separates and distinguishes God's people from not God's people is God's people seek to love other people the way Christ has done for them. Jesus says, love other people the way I have loved you. We're not Jesus. We're not God. We're not going to go to the cross and die. We're not, we're not going to be fully God. We're not going to live a perfect life. Those, those are only one person can do that, and his name is Jesus. But still, as the master or Lord or king, he, he has rules for his servants and disciples, and he expects us through grace-driven effort, to model him and to show love. There's many things we could say about Jesus' love, but just flipping one chapter over, we see him washing feet, and flip a few chapters over, we see him dying on the cross. So we could say Jesus' love is sacrificial. He's willing to be uncomfortable. He's willing to forget about himself to help and serve other people. It's self-giving. It's selfless. That, that's what it means to love other people. You won't always be congratulated by the world. People won't always see it. 
friends and family and grandkids won't always say, thank you, grandma, thank you, grandpa, thank you, mom and dad. You're not always going to get an accolade for this. But God who sees and knows and watches over, sees every action and every word, he wants you to love other people the way Christ has loved you, regardless if you get any praise or any thank yous. Love one another. There's a lot of one another passages. And Jesus does say to love your enemies and neighbors elsewhere, but he doesn't say that here, although it's very good to love your enemies and neighbors. But the focus here is on the church, uh, people who are in Christ, people who, who are other Christians. Although believers of Christ should have love for everyone, there should be a special, unique love for others in the body of Christ. Part of the way that we love one another is to stir one another up into godliness. You know, fellowship is good, meals are good, shooting the breeze is fun. But part of the reason why we meet and gather is to grow in Christ and to help one another grow. Talking about Jesus and the word together, praying for one another right then and there on the spot. Being sacrificial when you think about your spiritual gifts or your energies or how God has wired you and then you see other needs using your talents and gifts and abilities to meet other needs of God's people right in front of you, willing to be uncomfortable and sacrifice to serve other people. It's kind of what it means to love one another. And over and over again in Scripture, we see that we are supposed to love other people, even people who are different than us, even people who vote differently than us, uh, we, we certainly don't have to agree with everyone, and we don't have to go against our conscience. We should have our own convictions, fight for those convictions. But all be, must be done in a loving, godly way. The reason why we do this is because Jesus first loved us. The more that we consider the love that Jesus has for us, the more we contemplate the cross and His perfect life, and how we are accepted by God because of Christ, the more we'll be able to forgive other people. Uh, overlook those little annoyances that people do to us, or little sayings that they say. That we'll be more willing to fight for unity and believe the best in other people. Versus the vertical thing where we look to Christ and then horizontally we could serve other people and bless them. So this new command that Jesus gives us is not really a new command, but he does raise the bar of loving others as Christ has loved us. And what will happen when Christ's disciples love one another? Jesus answers that question in verse 35 where he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. What Jesus is saying is that if the church or if disciples of Jesus take this command seriously to love other people, others will notice. Others will know that that's, there's something different about those group of people. There's something different about that guy. People will notice um, the way that you interact with other people at work or in other social events, the way you talk and act and they will see something in your life and they, they will wonder, what, what is different about him or her? Jesus says, this is the, the way that he wants the world to know that you belong to me is through love. And throughout church history, if one is a Christian, 
uh, it has been very difficult for them to meet publicly to worship God. We live in America, a wonderful country. We have a beautiful building where we could worship the Lord and mostly not have to worry about anything. But it's not like that in every country. And it certainly has not been like that throughout the ages. Throughout the ages, people have been killed for Christ and martyred just for being a Christian. And there's been some, some Christians, sometimes two or four or ten, together doing ministry or together reading their Bible and praying. And others who don't belong to Christ get really mad about that and they want to take their life. And Tertullian, writing from church history, he, he comments on one time of Christians dying for others and he says this. See how, the love, see how they love one another. How ready they even are to die for one another. This has been the chief distinguishing mark of God's people for the ages is a love and a willingness to sacrifice and serve and help other people. One pastor was writing about how his daughter came to faith in Christ. And at home, he, you know, did the catechisms, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, you know, reading your Bible with your kids before night, praying with them, all, all the basic things that Christian parents should be doing, um, just helping their kids to see God, to know God, le leading in some way. Those things are good, but as we know, uh, life is messy and weird, and it's not very, uh, it's not very easy to characterize always. You know, if you do this, this will happen sometimes, but not always. And sometimes children raise, are raised in a good, wonderful home, and for, for reasons that we are unable to understand, they don't always commit their lives to Christ. And he was having a situation with one of his kids, and she was in her teenage years. And um, what led her to Christ was the love that she saw in the church. People that grandmas and grandpas and parents and other people loving one another appropriately, helping, serving. She saw the example of the church, and that opened up her eyes to believe in Jesus. He writes these words. He says, no doubt, the hundreds of hours we spent teaching her the Bible and talking with her played a role in her coming to know Jesus. But what ultimately showed her the reality of the gospel was hearing it from people in addition to her parents. She was engulfed by people who loved and followed Jesus. Their love, prayers, and conversations bore fruit one moment on a Sunday night as she trusted in Jesus. Our children, the next generation, other people are, are always watching. And you never know how God is going to use your love for other people. Praying for them, rides, uh, finances, needs, teaching in children's ministry. It, people coming to Christ and growing in Christ is not some through radical means that we've never heard of, but through the basic stuff, like Jesus teaches here, of loving one another. And when we do that, Jesus promises to bless his people. Sometimes he does amazing things like that. So we see that going to the cross was an act of love. We, we see the new commandment that Jesus brings. We also see here that Jesus knows truly how much we love despite what we say. And this is told by a back and forth conversation with Peter. Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me 
but afterwards you, you can. Um, Jesus is talking about either the cross or going to heaven. Either the cross, he's saying, no, you can't go with me, only I'm going to go there. Or heaven, he's saying, I'm going to go now, but you're not because I have more work for you to do. And then Peter, you know, being Peter, he responds, he says, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Uh, Notice that Peter didn't say anything about the new commandment he just got. Jesus just poured himself out into the disciples to give them a very important teaching. And he wants nothing to do with that, at least not now. Instead, he wants to be in the know. know, People just love inclusion and want to be in the know of knowledge or what's going on. And Peter, Peter is having this going on. And I'm so glad that Peter is one of the disciples because if Peter is a disciple, he's always messing things up. If you read the Gospels, he makes us feel better about ourselves. He's, he's always the one blurting himself out, talking before he speaks, cutting people's ears off. I mean, he does all kinds of different things throughout the Gospels that makes you laugh. And you, it's both comical and admirable at the same time. And he's, he says here that he's going to lay down his life for Jesus. So Jesus just said, here's the standard of, of love. I'm, I'm going to raise the standard. And Peter is, in effect, saying, I'm going to meet that standard. I'm going to show you because be, I'd be willing to lay my life down for you. But Jesus corrects him, and Jesus shows how much we actually do love him. He says, I will lay down my life for you. But w- what actually happens? And you, some of you know the story. There's a lot of irony here. Tremendous amount of irony in this one little passage. First, uh, not only does Peter not lay down his life for Jesus, but he, ca- he, he does the opposite, where he denies Jesus. He actually swears and says an oath of, I don't know this man, three times, by servant girls. It wasn't like there was like these macho buff men with a knife that's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something to you if, you if you say you believe to Jesus. It was servant girls he was afraid to answer to. So he's saying, Look at me, Jesus. I have all this love for you. And Jesus says, actually, do you, for the rooster coast three times, I'm, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times for the rooster coast. The second ironic thing is that Peter doesn't lay down his life for Jesus, but Jesus lays down his life for him. So he's trying to take Jesus' role, but Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's my role. I'm going to do that. There's even more irony because this whole Peter laying down his life for Jesus actually does happen. It eventually happens. In the last chapter in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this. Speaking to Peter, he says, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. In parentheses, John tells us, this is, this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Jesus is predicting martyrdom for Peter. When Jesus says, uh, you will str- you, another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go, he's telling Peter exactly how Peter would die. Now, Scripture doesn't record this anywhere in the Gospels, But if you know church history, 
you know how Peter died. 30 years later, Peter was crucified. So Peter says he's going to lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus says, no, you're not. You're going to deny me three times. Then the rooster crows. And that happens. But then at the end of the, at the Gospel of John, after Jesus restores Peter after denying Jesus, he tells him, actually, you're right. You know what you said earlier? You are going to lay your life down for me. 30 years later, Peter had to live with this for the next three decades. Peter was crucified. And he was not crucified the regular way. He was crucified upside down because he said, I do not deserve to die in the same way as my master. Peter does end up laying his life down for Jesus. There was a little girl in a different state. She was wearing a Jesus loves me mask. She worked at school. She was in fourth grade. And there was a litigation against her for wearing a mask that said Jesus loves me. Principal made her take it off. Lawyers got involved. They didn't want to see anything about that in school. People fought for her defense and said she should be able to peacefully express her beliefs. My interest is not in the litigation, so to speak, but the little saying there that said, Jesus loves me. So humbling that a fourth grader would be encouraged, but so profound that a 90-year-old Christian would still find benefit from that. So Jesus loves me. You never graduate from hearing that. You never get to the point where you don't need to hear, if I'm a Christian, Jesus loves me. And the more we contemplate how much Jesus loves us, the more we'll be able to love other people as Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Lord, please teach us how to love sacrificially, humbly, whether we get praises or not. We know you are watching, Lord, and we want to please you. Help us, Lord, to love. Give us the strength to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.